want you to try and turn on your imagination for a couple of minutes. I want you to try and imagine that you were born with a sinless heart, a heart that wasn't sinful. Then I want you to try and imagine that you managed to live your whole life without sinning. No sin of commission or of omission. You didn't do anything wrong. You did everything right. So, you have this perfect life. You die. You go to heaven, and you appear before God to be judged, to be assessed, as we all will. And you go pretty confident, sinless heart, sinless life, more than, better than sinless, a perfect life. Should God let you into heaven? God is, is scanning you, and He's scanning your life, and, and He sees that perfect heart, that perfect life. Should God let you into heaven? You're full of optimism and hope and expectation. Of course He should. And you're waiting for the, the doors of heaven to, to swing open and, and a big welcome to be given to you. But instead, a barrier comes down, crashes down in front of your eyes that says, no entry. You're stunned. You're shocked. God, how, how can you do this to me? I, I, I have a perfect heart. I have a perfect life. How, how can I not be ushered into heaven? And God points to some writing on that barrier that wasn't immediately obvious to you under the no entry sign, Romans 5, 19. As by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. You're, you're a bit puzzled. You say, well, what does this mean? Well, God explains Romans 5, 12, 21, and He says, Adam's sin is your sin. Adam's sin is counted as your sin. You have Adam's sin on your record. That's why, even though you have a perfect heart and a perfect life, you cannot come into heaven because you do not have a perfect record. You protest. Who wouldn't? But, 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 but how can… How can another man's sin keep me out of heaven? How can that be? And that's the question that we want to try and answer this evening. How can one man's sin, another man's sin, keep me out of heaven if I have a perfect heart and a perfect life? We want to answer it with the help of Romans 5, 12 through 21. If you've been following along this series, Romans 5, the initial verses, show us how trouble can actually lead us into the love of God. That's Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. It speaks of the, remember, the ladder to God's love, and it concludes with God's love being poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Trouble 
can sometimes be a way that God actually gives us more sense, experience, and enjoyment of His love. But then, we saw how God commends His love to us despite trouble. When we're tempted to look at trouble and conclude God doesn't love me, He commends His love to us in three ways, as we saw last time, through substitution, through propitiation, and through reconciliation. Here I want to give you a fourth proof of God's love, and it's representation. The idea of one representing the many. So, I want to first ask, who is our representative? Well, the answer, according to Romans 12, is Adam is the representative of many. And yes, I know it wasn't an apple, but it takes us back to that moment in the Garden of Eden when the forbidden fruit was taken and Adam first sinned. That's what we are being pointed to in this passage. I want us to think of Adam's appointment as our representative, his job description, and then his performance. So, first of all, Adam's appointment as the representative of many. And maybe for the younger ones here, just in case you don't understand this whole idea of a representative, think of it like this. You could think of it politically. We have in Washington a house of representatives. We have men and women that we appoint through our votes to go and represent our interests in the place of power and resources. We send men and women to Washington to act on our behalf for our protection and our prosperity. And if they do a really good job, then we benefit and we will reappoint them. We will reward them perhaps with another term by our votes. If they do a really bad job, we will try to vote them out of office and try and get a better representative, somebody acting on our behalf. Or maybe we can think of it commercially in terms of a business with a product to sell, they, they will employ representatives, sales representatives, who will go out and represent that company and its products to potential customers. And that business will prosper if that representative does his job well and gets lots of orders in, or it will lose money and maybe even fail if that representative doesn't do his job well and doesn't get sales. And so, you can see the whole idea here of one being appointed to act for the many. And the many, their whole prospects, their future, depends upon this representative, this one acting on their behalf. And what we're told here is that God appointed Adam to be the representative of, as it's put here, many, all. That's how God set up the original world. As He created the original world, as He made Adam and Eve, He made Adam the representative, the one who would act on behalf of us all. In fact, of all people in all places, at all times. There's never been a representative like that, has there? 
even the person with the biggest constituency or the biggest business, the, the representative is not representing more than maybe tens of thousands. But here, Adam is constituted, appointed by God, the representative of every single human being that would descend from him through ordinary men and women getting married, having children, and so on. So here, Adam has been appointed to be the representative, to act on behalf of all. And because God appointed him, we cannot sack him. We cannot let him go. We cannot say, well, you know, they can have him as a representative, but, but no thanks, I, I'm not having him. And when God makes an appointment, then that's it. It's finished. He is the final say. And Adam, when he was appointed, was given a, a target of, of obedience and with a penalty attached to it. And the destiny of the whole human race was bound up in this one man at this one time with this one test. That's how God set it up. If he did well, everyone does well. If he does badly, everyone does badly. So that's his appointment. What was his specific job description? What was he appointed to do? Well, the Bible tells us that he was given a number of tasks. If we go back to the beginning of the Bible and Genesis chapter 1, we can read some of these tasks that, that Adam was given in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28. We read, when God made man, he blessed them and said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves in the earth. Here's his job, his work. Then he was given a bit more specific work. It was that, and then narrowed down a bit to the garden, which we see in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15. The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So we've gone from subdue the whole world to, and let's start here, this little garden. And then it's narrowed even further to a specific test in this specific garden at this specific time. Because in verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So here he's given one job above all others. He's given a supreme test of obedience. It's, 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 it's very simple. It's very straightforward. Adam, look at all you've got. But look at that one tree. See that one tree? At least for a time, I'm just going to simply test your obedience. There's nothing immoral about the tree, nothing right or wrong about the tree. It's just a tree. I'm just going to test your loyalty to me by forbidding you from eating that, at least for a time. And if you eat, death happens. Death enters. So Adam was aware that when he was appointed, do it. Do this 
command, obey it, and he would secure life for himself and for all, fail to do it, and he and all who flow from him suffer from eternal death. Death will begin to do its awful work. So, quite a a significant, a serious, a solemn job description, yet full of potential as well. So, let's see, how did he perform? Well, we're told here in Romans chapter 5, verse 19, as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. He failed, didn't he? As we can read in Genesis chapter 3, and and his sin was all the worse because he knew the potential for good for himself and all others with him, that he would secure life, eternal life. He had a clear target. He had an easy target. He had a well-within-bounds achievable target, and yet he failed. He disobeyed. In this one act, we're told the whole of humanity were counted as sinners. This sin was credited, it was marked up, not just on his account, but on the account of every single person who would be conceived for as long as the world began. By one man's act of disobedience, the many were made sinners. So, as soon as we are conceived, as soon as we begin to be human life in the womb, we are already sinners. That's why David said, in sin my mother conceived me in Psalm 51. He hadn't done anything wrong, and yet he was already, he knew, by knowing his Bible, he knew he was already regarded by God as a sinner. So, Adam is the representative of many. We are coupled to Adam. If you think of a locomotive, the the train, the, the engine part of the train, it's the only part of the train with an engine in it, and all the other carriages after it are dependent upon this locomotive, this engine. Wherever that engine goes, the carriages have to follow. If it stops, the carriages stop. If it goes, the carriages go. And what we're being told here is that Adam was appointed by God to be the locomotive, to be the engine that that pulls the whole human race with him, and that, that God gave him a very simple destination to reach, but he decided to go off in another direction, and in fact, went off the cliff with all humanity following him. We are coupled to him. We are connected to him. We have no choice in the matter. We were born, coupled, connected to Adam. We went over the cliff with him. And therefore, we are condemned with Adam too. We're condemned with him. We're not on probation. We've already failed. We are already condemned. Even, Even if we live perfectly all the days of our lives, even if we have a perfect heart, which of course is impossible, but imagine it, and we turn up 
heaven on the last day and we present our perfect heart and our perfect life, there's still a stain. There's still a sin. It's still written on our record in indelible ink. Romans 5, 19. By one man's disobedience, you, 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 me, were made sinners. Adam represented us, and Adam ruined us. Can I change my representative? Is there any way I can swap out Adam for someone else? Well, thankfully, there's a second part to Romans 5.19. Because it says, so, just as one man's disobedience represented many sinners and made them sinners, so, in the same way, one man's obedience made many righteous. Jesus is the representative of many too. And let's look just as we did with Adam at his appointment, his job description, and his performance. First of all, his appointment. God the Father appointed the Son to be the representative of his people. Now, here's a difference. While Adam represented everyone, Jesus represents his people, not everyone. And we know that because in, Rome, in John chapter 17, where Jesus is praying as the representative of his people, he says, I pray not for the world, but for those whom you have given me. And so here we have to say God appointed his son to act on behalf of an innumerable multitude from every tribe and nation and country and culture, but not everyone. They're, they're, he, he is a representative of many, but not everyone. But the, the many, the multitude that he represents, their destiny, their prosperity, their future, their eternity depends all upon his performance. If he performs well, all his people benefit. If he fails, they all fail too. What was his job description? As we're told here, one man's obedience. That was his job. Obedience. Perfect obedience. An obedience that involved obeying the whole of the moral law every single day of his life, but also obeying the command of the Father to suffer the penalty of the law for all who were his people. That was, that was the most extraordinary act of obedience that this world has ever seen. How would you like that as your job? Obey every law for your whole life in thought, in word, in action, in motive, in ambition, in every, with every sense and every faculty, with every part of our body and soul, you've got to obey perfectly, and you've got to do that at the same time as you are suffering the most immeasurable pain and penalty through no fault of your own. 
There's your job. That's the obedience I require of you. That's what's needed if these people are to be saved. So how did he perform? Well, we're told here it was a great, extraordinary act of obedience. He obeyed perfectly from the beginning to the end of his life. An obedience even unto death, even the death of the cross. And just as Adam's sin credited the account of every single person that descended from him, so Christ's act of obedience is credited to the account of every single one of his chosen, saved people. Just in that same way. And this is not just restored to we're back on probation again. It's not like he, he took care of all our problems and then said, okay, that's you back to neutral. You're back to ground zero. Now you need to build. No. He represented us in such a way that we're not just back to ground zero, but we are given his righteousness, his perfection is regarded as ours. That's the kind of representative we have here. Christ, Adam's representation condemned us. Christ's saves us. And you might say, well, you know, I, I really don't like this whole idea. It's weird. It's, it's nothing I've come across before that somebody represents me and because of their sin, I, I'm condemned. I, I don't like that. I don't like this whole idea of representation. Well, if you don't want Adam's representation, you can't have Christ's. Because you can't choose to separate yourself from the one representation and choose to have the other. If you want to be saved by representation, the representation of Christ, you've got to accept that you're condemned by the representation of Adam. There's no salvation by representation without condemnation by representation. We don't get that choice. As Paul says here, one trespass led to the condemnation for all men. So, one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So, I want to ask you, who is your representative? We, all of us here, have a representative, and there's only two choices, Adam or Christ. The whole of humanity stands before God in two people. There really are, in God's eyes, only two people in the whole of world history. There's Adam, and there's the true and better Adam. There's the first Adam, and there's the second Adam. There's the representative that leads us over the cliff to condemnation, and there's the representative that leads us to life 
everlasting. We're hitched to one of these people, one of these locomotives. Who is yours? And of course, if you have to admit tonight, I'm, I'm, I'm still connected to Adam. I don't like it. I, if I could separate myself, I would, because I really don't like this idea of another man's sins being my condemnation. But how do I get out of that? If, if I'm on this train heading over the cliff, how do I uncouple myself and connect to a train going in the opposite direction to life? How do I disconnect from the, the representation of Adam and connect with the representation of Christ? Well, repentance decouples us from Adam. Repentance severs the connection with Adam. And faith couples us to Jesus. Faith connects us to Jesus. Faith and repentance, that's the way. This is how we can decouple from this train heading to destruction. And so I would urge you, if, if you're still on Adam's train, if you only have Adam as your representative, by faith and repentance, decouple or jump off. Your train this evening is heading towards everlasting death and destruction. That's where you're going. That's your ultimate destiny. And at the moment, the gospel train is going the other way. It's passing by through the preaching of the gospel, and Christ is on it as the, the driver, and He's saying, jump on board. Come on board. Get off that train and get on mine. We're going to life. And you might say, but, but my sin, my, my, I, I've sinned so much. My, my sin is so terrible. I, I'm in utter despair of, of who I am and what I am and where I've been. And therefore, we read on here, the law came in to increase the trespass. That's what you're feeling. The law is convicting you. Your sins are massive in front of you. But where sin increased, where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. You're on that train heading with Adam, your representative, to hell. And you look at your carriage and you see, <laughs> I've not just got Adam's sin in my little wagon, I've got lots of my own sins too. And, and you can hardly see out the windows. And it's suffocating you. And you just think there's no hope. But you hear a voice. You hear the voice of Jesus, another representative coming to you and saying, yes, you're heading in the wrong direction. Yes, you're heading to death. Yes, your sin has abounded. But where sin abounded, my grace much more abounds. I'm ready to connect with you ready to couple you to my train. Come and join us. We're heading to life. Life eternal. Life in heaven forever. Abounding sin? Yes. But superabounding grace? All the more. There are other phrases, verses in this passage that are difficult. I thought about, should I 
try and go through every word and every verse and try and get it all sorted in there. Just thought, no. I think if we can get this main point, this main truth, all the rest can fall into place. We don't want to obscure the, the super abounding grace of God in giving us this one for the many. All kinds of people, all kinds of men, all kinds of women, all kinds of boys, all kinds of girls. So, how can another man's sin keep me out of heaven? Actually, I guess if we begin to understand this, maybe that's a question initially of rebellion and annoyance, frustration, injustice. I think it's going to change. And it's going to be, wow, how can another man's obedience get me into heaven? And therefore, ask Jesus to be your representative for life. That is, for all of life, but also to get life, eternal life. Ask Him. That's all He's asking for. Ask Him. Say, Adam's my representative. I've never decoupled from him, and I've only added to his sin. Sin has abounded. But you've said here, where sin abounds, in that exact place, not where sin is minimal and small and limited, no, but where sin abounds, it's there, exactly there, precisely there, and only there, that grace much, much, much more abounds. He wants your carriage. He wants your wagon doesn't matter how dirty, how rusty, how poor the, the axles, whether it's an absolute vandalized mess, he wants your carriage. He wants to represent you. He wants his grace to superabound in your life. So get it. Get superabounding grace by getting this representative. And grow in superabounding grace. Grow in it. If you're connected, if you're coupled to Jesus, grow in your wonder, in your worship, in your adoration, in your amazement, in your awe. No longer will you be at all arguing, hmm, how can one man's sin condemn me? You'll be saying, wow, how can one man's obedience save me? Let's pray. God of superabounding grace, help us to get and grow in your superabounding grace by swapping out Adam for Jesus and turning from death to life by your Spirit. What a wonder that your grace and life are more powerful than Adam's sin and death. That your righteousness, an individual righteousness, can cover the sins of millions and even billions. We worship in awe. In Jesus' name, amen.